Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Nobody looks at the effectiveness of exercise for somebody who gets a gym membership, but then never goes to the gym. So in fairness to religion and to the religiously faithful individuals, if you're going to look at the full effects of religion, you really need to look at those that are getting the full dosage, so to speak. And in the COVID context, that becomes really, really significant. All right. Welcome, everyone. I am joined today by Dr. Jason S. Carroll. I'm extremely pleased to be joined by Dr. Carroll. He's done some great new research that we're going to spend a few minutes talking about. Jason is a longtime friend now and an excellent scholar, author of over 100 scientific articles, book chapters, and public scholarship pieces. He is a professor of marriage and family studies in the School of Family Life at BYU and the associate director of the Wheatley Institution. Uh, he has a long list of accomplishments and a uh, very long list of publications and research track record. So it's an honor and a privilege. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kevin. That's really kind of you. Well, I wanted to spend a few minutes today. We have recently confirmed a new member of the Supreme Court, Justice Amy Barrett. And Justice Barrett has seven children. And that's worth noting because there were protests during her confirmation process where people were dressed in handmaid's garb, so costumes from a fictional TV show about a dystopia where women are subjugated. Now, the irony there is that Justice Barrett, a woman of faith, in fact, a person of praise as the organization is known, is devout in her faith and married and has a big family. But Jason's got research that says the implication, right, the, the aspersion that's being cast is not just fictional, but the opposite of the truth. That in fact, women of faith, especially in more devout marriages, report more equality and greater happiness. Is that right, Jason? Yeah, we've seen studies for some time that have showed us those types of patterns in highly religious couples. But many of the studies are getting a bit dated. So we wanted to see if in still in the modern and contemporary context, if we saw these same types of benefits for highly religious couples, particularly where the spouses are united in their practice of faith. And we find that the, those, those patterns are still very much prevalent and in some ways even strengthened in the current context. Yeah, just go through this, maybe the two or three findings that leapt out to you as the most important or either the most surprising. Well, yeah, to give your listeners a little bit of a sense here. So this is from a large study we fielded in 2018 called the Global Faith and Family Survey. And we looked at over 16,000 individuals in 11 different countries. So we're trying to get a really good international view of this. We did get a really strong probability sample in the United States. We looked at it, and what we find is that religion matters, and that both for the individual outcomes that we looked at, we looked at a sense of life meaning, overall sense of happiness in life. But in particular, as I was mentioning, we focused on couple outcomes, relationship quality, shared decision-making in the relationship, sense of emotional closeness and bonding, these types of things. 
And what we found is the more religion and religious practice that couples engage in, and if they do that together as spouses or partners, we see an increased level in all of those outcomes that we looked at. And this we found not to be true of what we called shared secular couples, because we wondered if perhaps in the modern context, there's been a lot of talk about this rise of secularism. Is that just a new form of couple kind of consensus, so to speak? Is that a being united in a secular, non-religious uh, approach to life? We didn't find that to be the case. We found that in, in the shared religious practice, we saw significantly greater levels of relationship, health, and well-being connected to the religious uh, practice in couples. That's really fascinating. I'm not going to put words in Jason's mouth, but the irony that makes me smile and almost laugh there is it it may be, in fact, this meme of the handmaid's outfits may be, in fact, a projection of the secular home onto, onto what they suppose the religious home must be like. Well, and even deeper, we a lot of studies have looked at just at the kind of what I call high-level outcomes, you know, relationship satisfaction, relationship quality. We designed this study to also try to get not only in what was happening, but to see if we could get some indication of why. So we looked at deeper indicators in the relationship, at the decision-making process patterns, like I mentioned, the emotional closeness. One of real interest is we asked uh, the respondents to report on their partner's virtues, things like how forgiving is your spouse? Are they forgiving of your mistakes and, and shortcomings? Are they loving and kind in their treatment and behavior of you? And by far, the group that reported the highest level of virtues in their partner or spouse were, again, in these highly religious couples. So again, that pattern that it projected is one of hierarchy and one of distinction in that, where we actually saw the opposite. We saw more emotional closeness, more forgiveness, more loving behavior happening in that context than those with less religious participation and more so than those with no religious participation at all. That's really fascinating. I am a member of a group that is sort of self-consciously a combination of Christians and atheists to dialogue across that divide. And when I showed this study to them, the Christians said what you would expect, which is, yeah, of course. And the atheists said, it's just social desirability. They're just responding the way they think they are supposed to respond, but said, this can't be accurate. That was the major, that was really the only major criticism that anyone could come up with. And so I, I'm just passing that along to see how the author of the study might respond. Well, again, I would, I would point to the wide-ranging cross-cultural nature of the study as well. I mean, reminding ourselves here that this was an interfaith study, so we didn't look at particular denominations or religious affiliations. People were reporting on their religious practice across faith groups, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, across countries and national you know, contexts and settings. So to boil it all down to social desirability across all of those contexts is, in my mind, a bit of a stretch. Uh, the other thing is, is to somehow absolve shared secular couples where both partners are, are not participating in religion at all, to somehow that they don't have social desirability, that that's not a 
ideology or a pattern for living that they espouse and they believe to be of value. So there's a piece there that that starts to break down a little bit for me and that being kind of the, the capture of this. The one thing I would emphasize too that I think is important, we are finding in this study that the full effects of religion are likely being underestimated in other studies. And the reason for this is because almost all studies to date, when we label someone as highly religious or they get counted as a highly religious individual, we almost always just use a single indicator, typically like church attendance. And so we just say, oh, who are the people who go to church on a weekly basis? We'll compare them to everyone else. I've done studies like that. That's kind of been the way that we've done it. We did something unique in this study in that we created an index of religious participation. So we not only looked at attendance, but in particular, we wanted to look at religion in the home and to look at the home practices, personal prayer. How frequently does that happen for someone? What about family prayer patterns? What about religious conversations in the home, reading scriptures or holy texts, right? How frequently is this happening? And we set thresholds or benchmarks that people needed to hit to say, well, is it, you know, what would people who are deeply religious consider kind of the marks of being a highly religious person? So the individuals that we labeled as home worshipers in our report, they're individuals who are attending church weekly, but they're also saying they pray daily and at least two or three times a week. They're having religious conversations in the home. They're having family prayer. They're reading scriptures and texts. And when we separate that group out, which we kind of see as the full dosage, right? People that are kind of fully engaged in religious participation, not only in a congregation, but in their home, they look significantly different than just individuals who attend. But when those people are not identified, we don't really see the full effects of religious participation. And so that group gets muted in other studies and not fully identified in the effects that it's having in their relationship. That is really fascinating, and I think you're right, very important. And it strikes me as particularly important right now, both as a matter of practice and as a matter of future formation, during this pandemic, where many churches have been closed, either voluntarily or by ordinance, so that people are not, they can't do the attendance in person thing. And then And then the domestic or home religious life becomes critically important. So maybe address that and also what lessons there are to be learned about the sudden, suddenly much greater amount of time that people are spending around home and how to be successful with that. No, you're you're absolutely right. And we framed the report as we wrote it up because our data is pre-COVID, right? We gathered it in 2018, but As we wrote the report and as we did the analyses this summer, we wanted to look at that. And and we had the same thought that you're mentioning there, that these home-based religious practices have come into a new light. For many, it's becoming, rather than perhaps an extension of or an addition to their congregational worship, it's really becoming the backbone for many. Now, of course, for many of these home worshiper individuals and couples, they're really falling back on practices they've done for a long time and they've just deepened and perhaps had an increased sense of meaning and significance as they've been 
uh, perhaps in some cases, the only way they've been able to express their religious beliefs and faith. But we're finding that this religion in the home is really the, the element of full dosage. I mean, we understand this in other parts of life, whether it's the dosage of a medication, uh, the dosage of an exercise program. We always ask the question, well, how much do I need to get the full effects? One thing we could also say from our study, because as we looked at these home worshipers, compared them to attenders, compared them to people with nominal religious participation, there are many religiously uh, faithful individuals, individuals of, of faith, who are not receiving or are not practicing the religion in ways to get the full dosage. Uh, so we just found the same way that an exercise program or a medication, if you were to say, well, how effective is it? You'd want to make sure that you were answering that question with someone who got the full dose. Nobody looks at the effectiveness of exercise for somebody who gets a gym membership, but then never goes to the gym. So in fairness to religion and to the religiously faithful individuals, if you're going to look at the full effects of religion, you really need to look at those that are getting the full dosage, so to speak. And in the COVID context, that becomes really, really significant, particularly for individuals and couples that are engaged in raising children and in passing on values and the teaching of their children. Those home-based religious practices and rituals and conversations appear to have deep, deep impact and are meaningful to the sense of family cohesion, family belonging, and togetherness. Yeah, it seems to me that it would be really important to both couples who are raising a family or even just a married couple thinking about their own life and also to churches who are still trying to work their way through what is for most of us a completely novel situation in the 2,000-year history of Christianity, meeting together in person has always been central. It's evident even in the Acts of the Apostles, right? It's how important meeting in person is. And for many people, we simply can't do it, or we can only do it in very limited numbers and very limited circumscribed ways. And so let's talk a minute then in a very practical way about what that full dosage is. You mentioned some of those home-based practices so if I were a married person listening to this or even a church leader listening to this and thinking, I want to take this research and I want to operationalize it in my own life and in the life of our church, what are the, what are the home-based practices that you looked at, especially if any of them turned out to be even more salient than some of the others that they should think about inculcating in their own lives and then also in their church? Well, great. Yeah. So we looked in particular at a, a, a five-factor, five-item index is what we kind of saw it as. So we did look at attendance, which captures that attendance and participation in a faith community. But the reason why I think that may not be sufficient as well is we also know that people can engage in those public forms of religious practice with a variety of motivations, right? So it's not always clear why someone, not everyone sits in the pews at church, so to speak, with the same motivation. But I think when you move to the home practice, too, you also start to refine the motivations a little bit or have a little bit more clarity that it's an intrinsic, personal, desired practice rather than perhaps a socially done one. So we looked at prayer, and I think it's really, really clear that individuals that seem distinctive and are getting the full distinction 
there's a part of their life that is about connecting to the divine. And we even had one question where we looked at the respondents reported how much they feel God's love in their life. And the home worshipers, and I think largely connected to that practice of daily prayer, are much more likely than even other religiously practicing people to report that they feel God's love on a regular basis in their life. And then we looked at collective or shared practices. So we looked at how frequently family prayer was happening. So that would be the other piece that would bring in the sharing and uniting of a family coming together to connect with the divine, to invite that presence into their life. What a leading expert Annette Mahoney calls sanctification, right? It sanctifies that space and that time as a family. And then we also looked at religious conversations in the home. We kept that one broad because we know in different religious traditions that may take on some different forms, but it's a sense where children and family and spouses are discussing and bringing religion into their daily lives, not just setting it aside on a day of worship, not just something contained to the walls of the church or the synagogue or the mosque, but it's in our daily lives when we're having conversations. It's how we think about, it frames how we respond, how we think we should handle situations. And then we also looked at the reading of scripture and holy text, which is right now of the five behaviors we looked at, it's the lowest. It's kind of the threshold that is the hardest to hit, the least amount of people hitting that, that are spending, you know, we look, we put the threshold at, at least two to three times a week, not for any particular length of time, but just turning to the, the religious texts and writings of one's faith tradition and oftentimes orienting then to those daily reminders, those daily devotionals, anchoring in one's doctrine, in one's beliefs, being a central tenet of how someone approaches life. Oh, that's really, really important, fascinating research. Jason, as you know, the promise we make uh, on what we can't not talk about this podcast is that if people give us a coffee break, we will promise they learn something. So I think you've way exceeded that. We overshot the uh, the endpoint there by some distance. But we'll <laughs> we'll bring it to a close. And I do want to say, for those wanting more, which I find myself just in listening to you wanting more, the whole report is available at the Wheatley Institution's website. And we will put a link to that in the description. So you can just go to Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts And in the description will be a link to the full report so that you can read it and learn more about religion, home practice, and making our way through this pandemic with the help of uh, good quality research. Jason, thanks again for joining us. It's been great. And I look forward to seeing you in the real uh, as soon as we're able to do that. I look forward to it as well. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate you having me on. Great. Thanks, Jason. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating, and please donate so we can do even more.